ask your prayers as I bring God's word to you today. The Lord has given me a a lot of physical pain to um, match my heartbreak today, but I do want to minister to you God's word, a message that I very much need to hear, and I think you do too. And um, I know that my wife does, so I hope even though she doesn't hear it, you will hear it, and it will minister to you. Our scripture reading is found in Exodus, the 17th chapter, and I'd like to read the first seven verses. Hear this as it comes to you, because it's God's word. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin by their journeys according to the commandment of Jehovah and encamped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people strove with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why are you striving with me? Why do you tempt Jehovah? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto Jehovah, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Jehovah said unto Moses, Pass on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and take thy rod wherewith thou smotest the river, take it in thy hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Merah, because of the striving of the children of Israel, and because they tempted Jehovah, saying, Is Jehovah among us or not? And in the New Testament, please turn to 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 10. Again, hear God's word. For I would not, brethren, have you ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of a spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Albeit with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. 
Neither let us make trial of the Lord, as some of them made trial and perished by the serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them murmured and perished by the destroyer. And unto them by way of example, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation make also a way of escape, that you will be able to endure it. And thus far God's word. I suppose that those of you who are parents and have gone on vacations with your children can be quite a bit more sympathetic about the story in Exodus 17 than perhaps others. As you know, as parents, as you've gone on vacation, whether it's a one-day trip or a one-week vacation, uh, your children tend to get thirsty. You know that refrain, Daddy, when can we stop to get a drink? When can we go to the bathroom? You also know that when that thirst is not quenched, when that desire to stop and rest, uh, uh, to be satisfied in whatever way is called for at the moment has not met, that your children and maybe you yourselves tend to become irritable. And what has started out as a really wonderful idea for a family trip, a good time to get together and enjoy one another and have fun can be the most miserable of experiences because our own irritability, because of our thirst or whatever it may be, best of us. Well, if you think you've known that experience, in Exodus, the 17th chapter, the Bible assures you the people of God, in much worse circumstances for a much longer time, knew that very kind of experience. But this passage has not been put in the Bible for us simply to learn how to get along on long trips, how not to let circumstances get the better of us. This passage has been given to us to teach us a very important spiritual lesson about rebelling against God. We see the unfaithful rebelliousness of God's people in this passage, but we see as well the way in which God miraculously and mercifully meets the need of those people. If you're not a student of the scriptures, a serious student of the scriptures, one who studies the Bible from cover to cover, someone who pays attention to the thread sometimes that goes through the scriptures with respect to incidents or particular words or particular phrases, then you will not appreciate this passage for what it is. This is one of the most commonly recited passages in the history of redemption. It ranks up there right along with the Exodus, although the Exodus is the most commonly cited um, event in the history of redemption that the people of God look back to. This incident at Rephidim, for reasons which I hope will become clear through my exposition, was a crucial event in the life of Israel. And I just want to, before I go back and analyze the text itself, just show you a bit of that throughout the Bible, how often this passage is mentioned and how important it is. If you look in your Bibles, for instance, at Deuteronomy, the eighth chapter, verse 15. 
The reason why verse 15 appears is given in the 11th verse preceding, where Moses writes, Beware lest thou forget Jehovah thy God, and not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I commanded thee this day. Beware lest you become a covenant breaker. Beware lest you break the commandments of God, the law that he has laid down for you. Beware of that. And in the process of warning against such apostasy, we are told in verse 15, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, as a reminder of what God did and what we read in Exodus 17, Moses warns the people against covenant breaking with God. Or turn to the Psalm, Psalm 114, verse 8. The entirety of Psalm 114 shows the miraculous power of God as a reminder that he's a covenant-keeping God and a God who is able to do all things for his people. Notice the last thing that is mentioned in the list of things. God is able to make mountains skip like rams. He's able to make the earth tremble at his presence. And in verse 8, who turned the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a fountain of waters. In Psalm 105, verse 41, a psalm that is given to the people of God to call them to thankfully praise him and to encourage them in that. You see that at the very beginning of Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks unto Jehovah, call upon his name, make known among the people his doing, sing unto him, sing praises unto him, talk of all his marvelous works. And notice what is mentioned in verse 41. He opened the rock and waters gushed out. They ran in dry places like a river. In the 78th Psalm, this incident is again mentioned, this time so that the psalmist might call us to set our hope upon God and to warn us against testing him in unbelief. Psalm 78, verses 15, 16, and 20. He clave rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as out of the depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Verse 20, Behold, he smote the rock so that waters gushed out and streams overflowed. And why do we read about these things? Look back at verse 7 and 8. That they might set their hope on God and not forget the works of God, but rather keep his commandments. And might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Even the prophet Isaiah, when he is promising the return from captivity, thinks of this particular incident as certification of God's promise to his people. Isaiah 48 at the 21st verse. Let me read verse 20 to put it in context. Go ye forth from Babylon, Flee ye from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare ye, tell this, utter it even to the end of the earth. Say ye, Jehovah hath redeemed his servant Jacob, 
And Isaiah now certifies this promise of deliverance by saying, And they thirsted not when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow out of the rock for them. He claved the rock also, and the waters gushed out. And so this passage, I hope this illustrates just by a few incidents. This passage in Exodus 17 is very important in the history of redemption. It's one that is... um, memorable and spiritually significant. It's one of the most important incidents in the entire wilderness wandering of the people of God. And now let me try to explain to you why that is. This passage, though it is glorious for showing the power of God, I mean, who can bring water out of a rock? This passage not only shows us the glory and the power of God, But this passage, you see, is an indictment of God's people for their unfaithful rebelliousness. I suppose if I were to give a title to this incident, if we were writing an ongoing history of the stories of God's people, we would have to call it Rebels in the Wilderness. The people of God can be seen going through what I'll call a stair-step stumble in their life as God's people in the wilderness. The first step that they tripped over was failing faith. And from that, they went to miserable murmuring. And they tripped further into proving God. And the text tells us they eventually deserve to die. Look at each one of those steps. First of all, failing faith. In Hebrews, the third chapter, verses 12 to 14, The author of Hebrews uses this incident to warn God's people today against an evil heart of unbelief that loses confidence. Turning your Bibles to Hebrews 3 in the 12th verse. Take heed, brethren, lest aptly there shall be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and falling away from the living God. But exhort one another day by day, so long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we are become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our confidence, firm unto the end. If we hold fast our confidence in Christ to the end, then we are partakers of Christ. But if we do not, then we are guilty of having an evil heart of unbelief. The author of Hebrews exhorts us then to see in this incident the failing faith of God's people. Why would they be guilty of failing faith? We'll put it in historical context. What has happened up to this point? Where does this incident in Exodus 17 take place in the outworking of the history of God's people? In the 14th chapter preceding this, God's people have enjoyed exodus from Egypt. God has opened the heart of Pharaoh to let his people go. But then God closed the heart of Pharaoh and hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, resentful of what has taken place and wanting to retaliate, sends his armies out to pursue now the Israelites and to kill them in the wilderness. And Israel rejoiced at the Passover that God had delivered them from the angel of death. And then Israel went into the wilderness as the church of God, redeemed by him, by the Passover lamb, 
They went in typically into the wilderness representing God's people and now they are being assaulted by Pharaoh who after all has all the army, has all the equipment of war and they know that from a human standpoint they don't stand a chance and worst of all they have reached the Red Sea and there's no way across. And so looking back we see Pharaoh pursuing them across the desert They hear the the chariots of Pharaoh pursuing them, and they see the Red Sea here, and immediately they murmured. Immediately they said to Moses, "You you ambushed us, Moses. You brought us out here to die. And you know the story. Of course, it's one of the most dramatic of all. How Moses opens the Red Sea at the command of God. And the people of God went through not through sloshy marshlands, but on dry ground with walls of water on either side of them. And one has to wonder what is wrong with the thinking process of Pharaoh and his host as they decide they too will pursue the people through the Red Sea. And of course, as the people of God reach the other side of the Red Sea, and at that time Pharaoh and his army have been drawn into the sea, God now brings the waters of the Red Sea upon them and destroys them. Later the psalmist will say, and in that day Pharaoh and his host knew Jehovah. Now you're on the other side of the Red Sea. You thought you were going to die just hours ago, and God has done this mighty miracle, a miracle of nature, a miracle beyond anything of timing, a miracle that destroys your enemies And I'll bet on the other side of the Red Sea, you're saying, boy, I'll never doubt God again. I'll never doubt the presence of God. I'll never be faithless toward him. Look what he has done for me. And so we turn the page to the 15th chapter of Exodus, and the people of God now on their journey come to Marah, where they expect to find water to drink. And they do, but the water is bitter. It's undrinkable. It's brackish. And you think, well, then, of course, the people, having seen what God did at the Red Sea and knowing his miraculous power and having utter faith in God, said, well, God will provide. God, we're just waiting to see what good thing you do for us to show your presence and your covenant-keeping love for us. No, it didn't. And at that point, they began to complain and to curse and to bring accusation again. And at this point... Moses uproots a tree at the direction of God and throws it into the brackish waters of Mara and they turn sweet and the people can drink water in the wilderness. And now you're there at Mara and you're thinking, well, two times in a row, back-to-back miracles on the part of God. Now I'll never distrust the Lord. Now nothing that could happen to me would ever make me doubt his presence or his concern for me. And then you turn the page to the 16th chapter of Exodus and you find that the people have run out of food and they're hungry. And they just pray to God and say, God, we trust you. You have met every one of our needs. You've intervened miraculously to show your love. And we don't have any doubt about it. You're going to take care of us. No, that isn't what we see. We see the people again murmuring, complaining, not having faith in God, in his presence, in his provision. But God meets their needs, and so he sends manna every morning and quail at night so that they have bread and meat to eat. 
You see, from the background up to Exodus 17, the people of God ought to have learned that just as often as necessity would press them, God would relieve them. They should have learned that because time after time after time, God was faithful and God delivered them. And so we come to Exodus, the 17th chapter. This is the third major march in the uh, march across the wilderness for the people of God. And they've arrived at the area that was called Rephidim, though it will be renamed. They arrive at Rephidim and they expected to find a supply of water there and there wasn't any. And you're saying, well, they had faith in God. By this time, miracle after miracle after miracle, the display of God's faithfulness and love over and over and over again had finally convinced them that they could trust the Lord. But that isn't what we read. We read instead they hastened to despair. They didn't pray to the Lord and thank him for the circumstance and say, we're looking to you for your love and your power to be displayed. They rather despaired once again. I'm afraid that these people are very much like us. They obey the Lord. And they are disposed to follow after their duties until a temptation arises. Until an adverse circumstance comes up. And then they hasten to despair and they fall apart. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, Paul tells us that these incidents were recorded for our benefit, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He says, God put these stories in the Bible for us, who are New Testament Christians. And this isn't the point of today's exhortation, but I would just as an aside notice for you the normativity of the Old Testament in Paul's theology. Paul says these things were written not for the sake of having a history of the Old Testament. These things were written to exhort you in the church today. When God made sure this was put down, he was thinking of you, Paul says. And so we need to learn from this something. And I think one of the things we have to learn, though there's going to be more, is that things and circumstances, adversity, should not hinder our perseverance. For it is perseverance that makes us the people of God. We must be prepared to endure the assaults of temptation, to undergo the assaults of trial, if we are going to truly act obediently before God. Obedience is not demonstrated when the going is easy. Obedience is demonstrated when the going seems impossible. The people of God here have already experienced the Passover. The people of God here have already experienced baptism. In fact, Paul tells us at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized in Moses and in the sea. What God is showing us, friends, is not a story about people considered unbelievers in the world who are then saved by God's mercy. He's showing us apostates who are saved by God's mercy. These are redeemed people, outwardly so. They're only the 
visible church, to be sure. We know that in many of these people, there were hearts of unbelief and they fell in the wilderness. But nevertheless, in terms of the outworking of the history of redemption, this is God's church we are looking at and its failing faith. These are the people of God who have been redeemed from slavery. They've known the exodus out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea and the experience of baptism unto Moses there. And it's these people, if we could put it in modern idiom, these Christian, professedly Christian people who have failing faith. And how did their faith fail? Now, it's a whole subject in itself, but I would suggest you have an insight if you look at Romans 1. Ingratitude for God's previous favors leads to lack of faith. Paul tells us, speaking of all men in Romans 1, that knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasoning, and their senseless hearts were darkened. The darkening of the heart takes place because we fail to show gratitude to God by not being thankful, by not being grateful for the previous favors of God, we are setting ourselves up to have hard hearts toward God. The Israelites did not live daily thanking God for the Red Sea experience, thanking God for the waters at Marah being turned sweet. They didn't give thanks. They were a murmuring, complaining, self-centered people. And in that, their unbelief was exposed. You see, not being a thankful people, they lived in unbelief. And in unbelief, they didn't expect anything from God, really. And not expecting it, they didn't ask for it. James tells us, you have not because you ask not. The Israelites went through trial after trial, and they never asked God to help them. They didn't get on their knees and say, thank you, God, for all that you've done Provide for us. We trust you. They did not have hearts of belief. Of course, we should learn something else from this. Miracles don't create faith, do they? I mean, these people had miracle after miracle after miracle shown to them, and they still didn't trust God. In, ex- excuse me, in Luke, the 16th chapter, Jesus tells us a story about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, when he dies, goes to torment. And there in torment, is uh, hoping that he might be allowed to go back to warn his brothers about this horrible place so they wouldn't come here. And Jesus' reply is, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He says, no, Lord, but if one rises from the dead, then they'll believe. Jesus said, no, they won't. If they won't hear Moses, nor will they hear, though a man rise from the dead. Of course, Jesus is thinking ahead, isn't he? If the Jews would not believe the promises of God based on what Moses and the prophets gave, they wouldn't believe even if Jesus rose from the dead. Miracles do not create a heart of faith. Please remember that the next time you hear somebody says, well, if God would just do the following thing, then I'd believe in him. Expose that and say, no, you wouldn't. Since you are not grateful to God, since you don't trust in God, a miracle is not going to change your heart. A miracle is just going to display God's power. 
and his righteousness in judging you. Miracles don't create faith. Well, anyway, for their failing faith, the Israelites questioned God's providence, and they questioned the promise of God, and they questioned the presence of God. Verse 7 tells us they cried out, Is Jehovah among us or not? And the reason they did that is because they thought things were so unique and so terrible for them. I mean, how many people have been out in the wilderness like that? Not knowing where they were going for sure, not having adequate provisions, not able to go back. We might sympathize. We might say, well, of course, they're going to be kind of down in the mouth and having a hard time with confidence at a situation, in a situation like that. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, going through a number of the incidents in the wilderness wandering, comes to the end of the exhortation and says, so learn something from this. There isn't a temptation given you that isn't common to man. And God is faithful, who will with the temptation make a way of escape that you'll be able to endure it. This is what Israel should have learned. It's so easy for us to say, no one knows the suffering that I'm going through. No one knows my circumstances. It's easy for me to pity myself thinking those things. But no one knows how hard it is to get through. No one knows the heartache. No one really knows what it feels like. I remember Roy Orbison saying a song once, only the lonely know the way I feel tonight. But you see, in that, he acknowledged that there are at least other lonely people that know that. There's a Negro spiritual once that went something like this, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. The Bible says it's not true, though. Someone knows the trouble that you've seen. Someone knows our loneliness and our despair. Someone knows our fear. Someone knows our heartbreak. Someone knows our anxiety, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ, because he was tempted in all points, even as we are, yet without sin. We aren't alone. We shouldn't think our circumstances justify our failing faith. Israel did, and the second step that they stumbled down was that of miserable murmuring. Because they didn't have faith in God, they began to murmur against God, and it was a miserable, outlandish, perverse kind of murmuring. At Mara, they murmured. When the spies came back to tell about the promised land, they murmured. When Korah rebelled and was judged, they murmured. These were a murmuring people. In this particular case, the murmuring took the form of striving with God's chosen servant, Moses. And they made outlandish demands upon him. They came to Moses and give us water, Moses, as though Moses, a mere man, could just produce water from nothing. They were malicious in their unkindness. Look at the accusations they were willing to make against this man of God. They said, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness, Moses. This is just a big plot. You and Pharaoh were probably in this together. I mean, Pharaoh's dead, you know, drowned in the Red Sea. It didn't work out real well for Pharaoh. But you still, see the paranoia, you still, you're out to get us, Moses. You wanted to kill us. That's why we're here, Moses. And so... Unbridled appetites lead to angry exaggeration and murderous thoughts. You see, they began to plot against the servant of God. 
Moses brings to their attention that when they are arguing against him, they are really striving with God himself. And he warns them about that. He says, why do you bring accusation against God? Now, the people would be inclined to say, oh, Moses, you didn't read us in the right light. We didn't make accusation against God. We make accusation against you. Moses didn't hesitate to point out that as fallible as he was, and he was, I mean, Moses made his mistakes. Don't forget, Moses did not enter the promised land. As great a man as he was, Moses was not a man that somehow was on a pedestal and beyond the common infirmities that you and I have and the spiritual weakness that you and I have. Moses was not contrary to some Sunday school stories, the perfect leader. But this text makes very clear that when the people murmured against Moses, they were murmuring against God's provision of a leader for them. And they had better watch out when they do that. God protects his servants. Not because they are sin-free. His hand is upon them. And those who would raise a hand against them will answer, not to the servant of God, but to the one who sent the servant. These people were so full of exaggeration and murderous thoughts, they actually wanted to court-martial Moses, try him for treason, and as Moses says to the Lord, they are ready now to stone me. I'd remind uh, the elders among us that uh, as bad as things sometimes come, we haven't reached the point where we expect people are really going to execute us for our errors. But Moses was going to be. And so from their failing faith, they went to miserable murmuring, and then they tumbled down another step. The Bible says they got to the place where they are now proving God. And reproaching Moses, they were reproaching God, and they were putting, not Moses, they were putting God to the test. Because you see, what was at issue here is whether God is faithful to his covenant and his promise. Imagine the impiety of that. For mere men to demand of God a sign to prove that he is true, to prove that he'll keep his promises, to show that he's worthy of their trust. That's the very essence of sin, to put yourself above God, to suspend your obedience to his word until he satisfies you or meets your needs. It's to deify yourself. It's to exalt yourself. It's to make your word and your reasoning and your feeling and your experience more normative and more authoritative than what God himself has said. As Deuteronomy 8 says, the people were being tested in the wilderness when they thought they were testing God. Because God's purpose in the wilderness was not to provide a rapid mass transit to bring the people to the promised land. God's purpose in the wilderness was to bring the people to himself. And so they wanted to test God. All along, God was using this experience to test them. In Deuteronomy 6, we read, You shall not put Jehovah your God to a test as you put him at Massa. In Psalm 95, Harden not your heart as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. 
when your fathers put me to a test, proved me, and saw my work. Later, it's not without accident. I mean, it's not without purpose. It's not by accident that Jesus in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan, recites this very text from Deuteronomy and says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. God expects us to trust him without it being proven to our satisfaction, without our reason being satisfied, without our feelings being satisfied. And what happens to people who put God to the test? Who, because they aren't thankful for the previous favors of God, because they are not prayerful and trusting, because they are not faithful, but rather murmuring and complaining and actually challenging the Lord and putting his word to this, what happens to people like that? Our text tells us they deserve to die. Think of the disgraceful remembrance in the names given to this place, Masa, Meribah, Hebrew words meaning tempting and chiding. That's what it's going to be called now, the place of tempting and the place of God's chiding of his people. The wages of sin is death, and to challenge the Lord and not have faith in him calls for just those wages that they should die. Though men had unjustly quarreled with Moses, you'll notice that Moses went to God in his deep distress, and Moses was heard by God. And this is what God told Moses. And I'm afraid if you don't understand the symbolism here, you will not quake in the way that you really should. God, in answering Moses, says in verse 5, Moses, pass on before the people. This doesn't simply mean go outside the camp, although it has that effect. It means he was to publicly, in a ritual way, pass before the people, and he was to take with him the elders of Israel and the rod with which he smote the river. For you see, the elders of Israel were the judges in the lawsuits of Israel, and the people knew that. And the rod was the rod of judgment. After all, God had judged Egypt through that rod. And now Moses is to pass in the presence of the people with the elders of Israel to set court and to take the rod of judgment. And a lawsuit will be held, and the guilty will be punished. They demanded things of God in their unbelief, and God now will demand death in return. This is an amazing passage, though it doesn't end there. If it did, God would be perfectly just to have said, I've had it with these people. They've experienced the Passover, the baptism. They've known my daily provision. They will not trust me. They have hard hearts. I will judge them now. And yet the passage ends by teaching us that God's rebellious people are saved by a miracle of mercy. Moses did as God told him to do. He took the elders of Israel. He took the rod of judgment. He passed before the people. He went outside the camp. And God said in verse 6, Behold, behold, I will stand before you. There upon the rock in Horeb. And you shall smite the rock. 
Moses, these people deserve to die. But Moses, instead of bringing the rod of judgment down upon them, you bring it down upon me. And so the stroke of judgment fell upon God. Can you imagine that? The God against whom no man can approach with an uplifted hand, nevertheless, says Moses, lift the rod of judgment and make it fall upon me. And Paul, when he reflects upon this passage in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, is led to say in praise and inside of faith in verse 4, that rock was Christ. You know why? Because that's what Christ is all about. God taking the stroke of judgment for his apostate people. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the life and the ministry and the redemptive death of our Savior Jesus Christ, even as the elders of Israel were for the work of Moses in the wilderness. And even as Moses went outside the camp that God would be judged in the place of his people, Hebrews 13 tells us Christ suffered outside the city wall of God's people. Paul tells us in Galatians, the third chapter, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become in our place a curse, having become a curse for us. For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus hung upon the cross, thirsting, but without reviling, without ceasing to have faith in God. And in John the 19th chapter, we actually learned that that rock was struck and water with blood came from his side. Paul, you see, is really gripped by this and all these connections. And he says to the Corinthians, which if you knew everything about Corinth, you would say, why does God put up with that church? And to the people at Corinth, he says, I warn you, God judges people in the wilderness. Take heed. But remember, there isn't any temptation that's too big for you. And in telling the story of Exodus 17, he reminds them that rock was Christ. Isaiah had said that God himself would send his own servant, a suffering servant, who would be smitten for the people. His affliction would be our salvation. And this is what Exodus the 17th then is all about. John the seventh chapter, Jesus has gone to that area in Jerusalem where great, huge containers of water are poured out during one of the annual Jewish feasts. And on that day of the water pouring, Jesus stood up and he said, if any man is thirsty, 
Let him come to me. And from within him will well up rivers of living water for his sustenance. This text is important for us to hear today because we're the church in the wilderness. We're not in the promised land yet. We have enjoyed the Passover of God. Christ has died. And every Lord's Day, we have the memorial of that in the supper. And we are the church that has been baptized and owned by God. But it is not impossible for us to fall away from the living God in ungratefulness for his favors, in failing faith, in miserable murmuring, in putting him to the test. We all deserve to die. The message to those of us who are trapped in self-pity, those of us who are trapped in circumstances that we think make it impossible to trust the Lord, the message to those of us who are tempted to fall away from the living God is to look to that rock that is Christ. The only hope for rebels in the wilderness is that God would bear the stroke of judgment in their place. Jesus did. He came to do that and also offers living water, daily, inner resources of water to meet our every need. Isaiah the prophet uses this water imagery when he says in the 55th chapter of his prophecy, Ho, those of you who thirst, come to the waters. Come and drink freely. Because God doesn't charge at the river of living water. He simply bears the cost himself. In this weary land with its burning, nude heat, may God be gracious to see to it that all of us stand in the shadow of a mighty rock that has been smitten for us. A rock that is Jesus Christ himself who provides salvation for apostates and rebels and sustenance to get them through whatever their problems may be. Let's pray. Our Lord, when we read this passage, we confess that it is a mirror of our own hearts and our own bad attitudes and our own failing faith and our own inconsistency. We are indicted by this story. We know that it was written for us. But we are encouraged that though we fail and though we find ourselves in tough circumstances and though we are tempted, tempted even to unbelief, yet you are willing to bear the stroke of judgment that we deserve. And we thank you for that grace, grace that reaches out to rebels, grace that makes provision for those who are undeserving, grace that reaches as far as us. And we thank you and ask that you would cleanse us and give us life and confidence in you that we might, under whatever circumstances of life, whatever the temptation or trial, 
demonstrate obedience to your word and confidence in your promise, knowing that you will never leave us or forsake us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to